Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. What a happy Tuesday to your friends and a happy St. Patrick's Day, I suppose I should add. But obviously, this is a Tuesday. This is a St. Patrick's Day uh, unlike any other. Uh, and if there was one thing to take away from the prime minister's uh, brief news conference earlier today, it was the advice to stay home. Stay home. If you want to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, stay home and celebrate St. Patrick's Day. But obviously, we got a lot to get to on the program here this afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. A uh, couple of quick notes here. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is going to be holding uh, a media availability at one fifteen our time. So in just uh, under 45 minutes from now, we will go live to that. Uh, later on today, 3.30 is the regularly scheduled update from Alberta Health Services and Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, uh, and she will be there. Now, if you uh, saw or heard the uh, press conference yesterday, uh, Dr. Hinshaw was in self-isolation. Uh, she had woke up yesterday, she said, suffering from a sore throat, uh, was taking precautions, was tested for coronavirus, COVID-19. That test has come back negative. So she has resumed her normal duties today. And uh, she will be live at that press conference at 3.30 this afternoon, and we will have that for you live uh, coming up uh, in about three hours from now. So a lot of ground to cover on the program today, but I want to get to our next guest uh, right out of the gate here. Talk a bit about the situation in Ontario uh, and also his own personal experience of making his way back to Canada. Matt Gurney is a columnist and editor with the National Post, nationalpost.com. Matt, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's good to be here. I'm self-isolated, so you calling me just helps break up the routine a bit. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm broadcasting from home, so I'm, I'm basically yeah. self-isolated, too. And uh, maybe that's all for the best. I mean, it's we're in a real precarious situation here, and, and wondering where this is all going to go. I mean, it was quite a contrast to me to hear eight new cases in Ontario. I think the number in New York State was 432. Um, so uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what those numbers represent. I mean, how, how are you feeling about it? Um, that's actually a really interesting question and I don't know. And what we're looking at, not just in Ontario, but in Canada in general right now, we don't know if we have acted in time and I still think mm-hmm. there's more we could be doing. And I still think there's more we should be doing, but even even if we don't take those extra steps, we are seeing across the country, and I don't I don't pretend to be up to date on what's happening in Alberta, but just, you know here in Ontario, you know restaurants and bars are closed. They can do takeout, but that's it. Schools closed, theaters closed. I mean, we've shut down a lot of stuff, but there's more we could do, and I just don't know yet if we are ahead of this thing. And the, the problem is, we're not going to know for a couple of weeks, two, three, four weeks from now. We will either know that, yes, we acted in time and took the necessary steps to get this under control, or we'll know the opposite. And obviously, I know what I'm, what I'm uh, hoping for, but we just don't know right now. And the problem that, uh, that does worry me is that all of our uh, indicators on this are inherently lagging indicators. People mm-hmm. do not show symptoms uh, as soon as they are infected. People who are tested do not get their test results right away. There are backlogs of testing. I just read this morning that uh, there are shortages of some testing equipment in Ontario. Not all of it, but some of it. So all of our best information is necessarily several days out of date, maybe as much as a week out of date. 
So what we're looking at in Ontario, and this is true all across the country, is how we're doing really a week ago. So a week from now, we'll know how we're doing today. And a week after that, we'll know how we were doing a week from now. Yeah, and people need to keep that in mind. I mean, we'll find out at 3.30 how many new cases have been confirmed in Alberta. But, you know, people need to remember, those aren't people who got COVID-19 today. Yesterday, yeah. Uh, Those are people who however long ago, started experiencing symptoms, called the the health line, figured out how to get tested, had to wait a few days for the test results. So that's when we get those numbers. So as you say, that that lag is a big part of the story. Uh, In Ontario, though, they have declared uh, a state of emergency. And, you know, I I think, you know, Doug Ford certainly is is to be commended. I, I think he's done a pretty good job handling this and communicating uh, to the public uh, about what's being done and why. So what, what does that state of emergency mean? Well, what it is meant in, in a very literal sense, it, it has two immediate effects. First of all, Doug Ford, immediately after declaring the state of emergency, issued several orders. Uh, bans over uh, Banning groups over 50 from any congregation and shutting down uh, a lot of facilities. Now, some of these shutdowns actually are just making official what had already been requested. Ontario had already asked bars to close, had already asked theaters to close, even houses of worship. So the state of emergency gave the government the ability to make that an order instead of an ask, and this will be enforced, we're hearing, either by by law enforcement officers or, if necessary, the police. So that is something that is uh, firmer than what we'd seen before, but it's not a huge change. But the thing that is actually, I would say, more meaningful, we don't know where this is going to go yet. Canadian governments have huge emergency powers. And we don't know, like, we've never dealt with something like this before. No. And our current emergency management laws have never been tested in the way they're probably going to be tested over the next couple of weeks. So we don't know how that's going to work, and we also don't know what may be necessary. But what we do know is that once the legislature declares a state of emergency, right now Doug Ford has done that on Cabinet's own authority, but there's going to be a meeting of uh, the legislature later in the week where we, apparently all the parties have agreed to immediately enact the emergency legislation. That will give the government sweeping powers. What they ultimately do with them, I don't know. But I think the premier and apparently the opposition leaders as, as well have correctly concluded that this is something we'd rather have behind us so that it's there in place if it becomes necessary. You know, it's an interesting point you raised in, in your piece today on the question of overreaction versus underreaction. I mean, it's, it's pretty unlikely that in a few months or, or whenever it is, we'll look back and say we got this exactly right. I, I think we'll yeah. either look back and say we underreacted or we overreacted. And, and really, for all intents and purposes, it is much better that we look back and say, okay, we overreacted. Well, look, you and I are brothers in fiscal conservatism, and we've talked about um, wanting governments to be efficient with money and getting bang for the buck many, many times, and your, your listeners have had the chance to hear us do that. But this is one of those only examples where, as hawkish as I am on, uh, on budgets, there are some exemptions when you've just got to spend the money, and some of those exemptions are times of war, in times of natural disaster. And a pandemic might not be what we often think about when we talk about natural disaster, but that's exactly what this is. So if we overreact in the short term and we end up taking more steps than are necessary, there will be money that is spent and there will be economic activity that is suppressed. And that isn't good, but it's acceptable. 
And normally I would not be the guy calling for more government spending than necessary or to see more uh, suppressing of the economy, well, any suppressing of the economy, really. But in this case, we can overreact now and then ease off later, or we can try to guess where we ought to be using these lagging medical indicators and then find out a week from now, oops, we were wrong, we should have done more. Because in that case, we're going to end up doing all these extra things anyway, but we're going to be doing it after the situation has already become worse. At his press conference this morning, uh, Doug Ford was asked about, uh, for instance, shopping malls, office buildings, transit systems, uh, manufacturing facilities, things like that. And he said, no, right now those are remaining open, but we, we have in mind that it might become necessary to close them in the, in the short term. To my mind... If you're already thinking that it might be necessary to do something in the short term, just do it now. And the worst, the worst case scenario is that it was unnecessary and that it costs us some money. And the best case scenario is that it actually ends up being required and prudent and ends up saving potentially thousands of lives and, not to mention, a ton of money and economic activity. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? I mean, obviously, the big concern is the burden on the healthcare system, and that that's going to cost a ton of money. So you got to factor yep. that in. Uh, and I mean, you know, the good news is is that you know, if if viruses can hit a dead end, if if someone who's sick and, and isolates and doesn't infect anybody else and it goes away, I mean, that's part of winning this war. I mean, you you mentioned it's kind of like a natural disaster. It's also kind of like a war. And instead of the government sticking you in a tank, the government's going to stick you on your couch. Yeah, when I think about some of like the, the wartime experiences of members of the Gurney family, I mean, I think I'm kind of lucking out on this one. Like, I'm not riding a bomber flaming down into the jungles of, uh, of India. Uh, I'm not uh, riding a landing craft to land on the beaches of Normandy or getting shot off my horse in the First World War. In terms of wartime contributions, like, I'm working from home. You know, like we're, we're eating foods that are not as fresh as usual because we're kind of eating out of our pantry. I gotta say, this ain't bad. And I know that this is a scary time for a lot of people and uh, anxiety is high and stress is high. And believe me, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, exempting myself from that. I have not slept well in days because there's just so much on my mind. And I think I speak for a lot of us on that one. Mm-hmm. This is a stressful, unprecedented time in our history. But right now, the sacrifices we're being asked to make aren't that big. And if we aren't careful, we could find ourselves in a situation like we're seeing in Italy, and now we're seeing it in France and Spain as well, where the sacrifices are much bigger than we're being asked to put up with right now, and the consequences in those countries is already really, really intense. The the number of dead in Italy is going up many hundreds every day. Spain seems to be heading in the same direction. That could easily be us in a few weeks, but it could easily not be us if we, God willing, make some good decisions in time. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the airport thing for a second, because I I get the sense that, you know, the situation today is a lot better than it was a few days ago. But there were some pretty alarming images and stories uh, coming out of the big airports over the weekend and and the the throngs of people uh, returning to Canada and what they were being told. I mean, it was it was kind of a mess. What, What did you see firsthand? 
Well, uh, just for the, for the context for your listeners, my family and I were on a vacation starting about two weeks ago, and we arrived back in Canada on Saturday. And it was, it was an interesting vacation, because about halfway through it, the news really, really, really uh, changed. And mm-hmm. obviously it was something we were aware of, and we were certainly aware that this could be happening. But we had flown down to Florida, again, like I said, about two weeks ago, and we got back to Toronto on Saturday. And by the time we got back, I, I knew... That there was a self-isolation requirement, which is why my family and I are isolated. We are riding this thing out at home. And it's funny, right now I'm talking to you as I pace around my basement, and this thing is a minefield of toys that are just everywhere because <laughs> my kids are ransacking the house. But, yeah, we're isolated, uh, and I knew we would be. And when we landed at Toronto Pearson on Saturday night, I was wondering, and I don't say this in a, in a hostile way, I was just generally wondering what border services would, would say and how they would react to this. Like, I've got a journalist's curiosity. Uh, what ended up happening was actually the smoothest, easiest, least stressful customs experience I've ever had in my life. We were processed by an automated uh, kiosk with a touchscreen, which I hope they're cleaning regularly, by the way. Yeah. Um, my wife and I had to scan our passports and our kids' passports. My wife and I were photographed by the kiosk. Our kids didn't have to be. The automated kiosk asked us, are you returning from Italy, Iran, or China? We weren't, so we said no. It printed out a form. We handed the form to a customs officer who looked at it, looked at our passports, said, hey, where are you coming from? I said, Florida. He went, great, welcome home. That was it. There was no information about self-isolation. There were no questions about where we'd been or whether we had any symptoms. There was no automated uh, PA announcements in multiple languages giving people information. There may have been signs up on the walls. I was looking for them, but I didn't see any. So there may have been some, and I just didn't notice them, but if there were... Uh, My wife did see a pamphlet that listed COVID symptoms, but there was nothing uh, that was handed to us, or we weren't informed anything about self-isolation. Now, other people who were landing at Pearson around that time, apparently some of them were given pamphlets. People were tweeting out pictures of them. We did not get one. So I don't know if that's because they ran out. We landed just a bit before midnight, so maybe by that time of the day they'd run out of them. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they were just not being exhaustive in who they gave them out to. So, uh, you know, we had uh, driven ourselves and parked uh, our car there. So we just kind of marched out, grabbed our luggage, got the car, drove back to our house, and we've been isolated ever since. But this was a decision that we made. Like, this is something mm-hmm. we knew we had to do because I'm a news junkie and I'm web savvy. So I was able to plug in digitally and stay on top of all the news, and I knew what we had to do. If you're landing in Canada and you're, you're not a news junkie like I am, or you're not web savvy and you didn't have a data plan you could access from Florida, or if you don't speak English or French, you had no idea that you were supposed to be self-isolating. Now, you probably find out eventually, but maybe you've gone grocery shopping by the time you do. Maybe mm-hmm. you've ridden the bus back to your house from the airport. So I think you are right. Things do seem to have improved after uh, a mounting public and uh, press outcry over the last couple of days. But no, landing on Saturday night was a pretty eye-opening experience. All right, much more at nationalpost.com. Matt, great chatting with you. Uh, stay well, and um, you know maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to chat again here soon. <laughs> Look forward to it. Thanks, man. All right, appreciate it.
Matt Gurney, uh, columnist, editor with the National Post, nationalpost.com. So uh, it's sort of a snapshot of where things are at in Ontario, uh, the state of emergency there, and Matt's own experience uh, in returning to Canada on Saturday. And, and yeah, look, I mean, obviously, Canadians were being told, get home, and on top of the people who were planning on coming home anyway. Uh, so a lot of people in the airports, very close together, and, yeah, unfortunately, not much being conveyed to them. Not a lot of screening going on, and so uh, let's hope the impact of the fallout from that is minimal, and it does sound as though the situation has improved a lot. All right, so obviously we just heard from the Premier uh, talking about the public health uh, emergency, the state of emergency declared in Alberta, and, you know, it, it I think helps crystallize for folks what it is we're dealing with here, that, that this is a public health emergency, uh, but it's also then, and, in, in, you know, it's certainly an economic emergency as well. So we're dealing with with these two crises right now, and I think in, in the immediate term, it's about addressing the public health side of this, but obviously we, we need to be cognizant of the impact this is going to have on, on the economy. And I, I threw it out earlier, you know, the, the perception, I, I'm, I'm starting to get maybe that, that what we might see is, is Canada maybe with a, a more effective public health response in the U.S., but maybe the U.S. with a more effective uh, fiscal and economic response. Uh, it's very early days, obviously, uh, too soon to draw any conclusions. Here's the latest. Jennifer Jacobs uh, with Bloomberg, uh, the White House uh, $1.2 trillion coronavirus plan. A wave of $250 billion in checks given directly to Americans. That would be followed by another round uh, of checks, another $250 billion, $300 billion for small business loans, $200 billion uh, for unspecified stabilization funds. So $1.2 trillion, you put that in a Canadian context, you know, we're around 100 to $120 billion if, if we were to do something uh, comparable. Uh, we're going to find out, I think, tomorrow, uh, the finance minister, Bill Morneau, will be speaking about what Ottawa's response is going to be. The premier has indicated that uh, there'll be some recommendations announced later this week uh, from his emergency economic panel. But the idea of giving money directly to people as as kind of a short-term economic bridge here seems to be gathering more steam uh, and from various sides uh, of the political spectrum. Joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Ken Bostoncool. He's a founding partner with Cool Top in Public Affairs, the former senior campaign advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and uh, certainly got the conversation going around this idea of uh, a crisis income. Uh, Ken joins us uh, from Lathbridge. Ken, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Gee, thanks, Rob. I hope you're keeping well. Uh, I am, uh, and I hope the same uh, is true of you. So I appreciate you making some time for us here today. Um, so tell us a bit more about your thinking on, on how we come at this question of, of how to best assist Canadians through this period. I'm going to I'm going to turn your argument you just made on a bit on its head Rob because I okay. think I think the public health emergency is the most important emergency right now and as I was thinking about this I have three son-in-laws and each of them are not making anywhere near the money that I make and each of them I imagine my son-in-law Matt waking up and saying to himself I have a I have a bit of a fever and I don't feel that good but if I don't go to work today I won't be able to pay the rent yeah. and and when I think about my son-in-law, Matt, making that decision, I think, well, what if the government tomorrow said every Canadian, whether you make zero money, whether you make billions of dollars, every Canadian is going to have a check for $1,000 or $1,500 or $2,000 sent to you or put into your bank account on Monday of next week. Imagine how that would change the psychology of my son-in-law, Matt, when he wakes up tomorrow morning and says, do I go to work? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think the economic, I mean, clearly there's an economic side to this. And I'll talk about that in, in, in just a minute. But I think my motivation, the more I thought about, the more I thought about it, and my proposal was getting more attention than I expected. I'm writing something for the Globe later this week now. I did another interview this morning. Um, but, but the more I think about it, the more I think that getting money into the hands of Canadians in the next short while is actually addressing the public health issue as much as the economic issue. Cause it'll make decisions on the margin that much easier for people who can't afford to skip a bunch of days of work. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's an important point. I mean, these two issues, the public health situation, the economic situation, like you say, I mean, it very much overlaps. Um, so, I mean, how do we come up with, you know, a number and, you know, I mean, it's obviously meant to be a temporary measure, but but what's yeah. the, the most effective way of doing this, do you think? Well, there was a bunch of people on Twitter, uh, and sometimes the econ- sometimes economists can have fun on Twitter and you can learn a few things, but the, the discussion on Twitter among the economists in Canada has been around whether we need some sort of basic income. And as I started to think about this, I started to think that for all of the reasons that I don't like a basic income, um, namely that programs should be targeted to the needs of Canadians, whether you're disabled or on welfare or have other issues, you know, our welfare system should be complicated. It should deliver more money to people with more needs, and therefore a basic income is a bad way to deliver that. And the other thing is, if you give a basic income, maybe a guy who's 50 years old like me and has made a bunch of money says, hey, I'm going to stop working from 50 to 60, collect the basic income and go skiing for 10 years. But so, so the incentives of a basic income are all, are all wrong for the, for the long term, but they're exactly the opposite in a short-term crisis. In a short-term mm-hmm. crisis, you want people to be staying home, especially in a health crisis like this. You want people to have some assurance that their that their their income's going to get taken care of, and you want them to know that it's only temporary, so they don't stop looking for work. And so, for all of the reasons that a long term base, why I personally don't like the idea of a, of a of a universal basic income over the long term, but all the arguments that make that a bad idea for the long term make it a good idea for the short term. Um, for yeah, all the reasons yeah. I decided. And, and right, and you, yeah, go uh, ahead. You, well, I was going to say, I mean, that, that's how we need to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, you asked about the number. I, I, you know, I could sit down and do some calculations. Um, I, I think, you know, Ron Kneebone from the University of Calgary has, to, has talked a lot about uh, different amounts for people in different cities um, uh, because it costs more to live in Calgary than it does in Lethbridge, and I think we should take some account of that. But I think the bottom line is we need to get some cash or some assurance of cash into the hands of people who are very anxious today about paying their mortgage. And and even if we just do that for one month and then sort it out down the road, I think that's really necessary. And the obvious question is, how do you make sure that people like you and me who are in the 1% of Canadians don't get to keep that money? And my solution to that was next year in the tax form, the federal government can put a line in that says, if you're paying the lowest tax rate, you get to keep all the money. If you're paying the second tax rate, you get to pay back 25%. And if you're paying the third tax rate, then you have to pay it all back. And so... It might cost 40 or $50 billion to do this now, a massive increase in the deficit. But I think if we collected it from the wealthier Canadians next year, we'd get uh, uh, probably at least half to two-thirds of that back. Yeah, and it would be pretty simple, right? Just put a, a line in the, uh, in the tax form next year. Well, this is, this is, I mean, Quebec just announced a program for people who have to self-quarantine. And they've made it an application-based program. And I'm worried about that because an application-based program means that you're sick in your bed, you've been asked to self-quarantine, and now you've got to go onto a government website, you've got to apply, you've probably got to get a doctor's note, the government program's got to get up and running, and this is all going to take a week or two. And the beautiful thing about our tax system is that all of this information, or a lot of this information, 
is already accessible and it's already available to the vast majority of working Canadians. Um, and so, so I just think in terms of speed and efficiency, we should be looking to the tax system, which is much more efficient at delivering programs and setting up what Quebec has done. I don't want to be critical of what Quebec is trying to do. I'm just nervous that application-based programs will take a lot of time to set up and won't get to the people in time. Right. And, and you know, maybe there, there's a need for more targeted assistance for certain groups or certain Canadians. And I guess this kind of approach doesn't preclude that, does it? Well, you know, Lindsay Ted's a, a great economist at the University of Calgary, spends a lot of time worrying about the poor, poorest in Canada who don't file income taxes and how do we reach those people. And I think, you know, if we do what I'm suggesting, those people are, are, are at risk of being left out. And I, I don't want to minimize that. And I think it's really important that we figure out maybe we do a temporary bump in income assistance. Maybe we do a couple of other things. But the real issue that I see right now is a drop in income of people who are working. And people who are working, generally speaking, are filing income taxes. Because even if you're not paying income taxes, the income tax system uh, has a bunch of programs that pay you money, especially if you have children. And so if, if, it's, if it's earned income, working income that we're trying to replace, then I think the tax system is the best for it without minimizing Lindsay's concern. And we had a good debate on Twitter this morning. Lindsay's concern about people who are not filing income tax forms. We do need to do something for them as well. Yeah, well, that's a good segue. We're going to hear from Lindsay in a little bit here. Uh, can appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. Anytime, Rob. Stay well. All right. You as well. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Ken Boston, Cool, founding partner with Cool Top and Guy Public Affairs, former senior campaign advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, you might recall even back a little bit further than that, uh, Ken Boston, Cool, Stephen Harper, a couple of fellows who had signed on to that, uh, that firewall letter back in the day. But interesting uh, argument there from, from Ken Boston about the idea of a, of a crisis income, kind of a bridge income for people. And I, I like the point he made about linking it back to, to the public health imperative, right, where you, you don't have people leaving their homes feeling they have to go to work because of economic insecurity. All right, well, let's continue this conversation about, you know, how to to help Canadians get through this period. And, you know, there's going to be conversations about, well, what about this industry or that industry? And certainly conversation about businesses in, in general getting through this. But uh, certainly, I think, you know, just in, in terms of helping Canadians, first and foremost, I think that that's got to be the, the priority. So this idea maybe of, of just directly giving money to Canadians, kind of the universal basic income on this short-term emergency scale. But joining us uh, for some further thoughts on maybe the most effective way of helping Canadians right now, very pleased to welcome to the program, Lindsay Teds, Associate Professor at the University of Calgary, Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy at the U of C. Uh, Lindsay, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, let me get your thoughts, first of all, on this idea of just, you know, coming up with a number, whatever it is, $1,000, and mailing a check out to everybody. Well, so, first of all, I should probably start out by saying that I am on an expert panel for the British Columbia government on designing and implementing a basic income um, for BC. We're testing the feasibility of this. So okay. I've been working on that for about a year and a half now, and if that gives you an indication of how easy it is, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that should indicate it. So I, it, it's one of these ideas that it, it sounds great in principle, and I totally agree with it in principle, but I'm the one who has to implement it. I mean, that's my job. This is I'm, I'm, I'm the one, that's my expertise, is implementing public policy. And this is where I, I come in and sort of say, well, let, let's 
think about how we're going to implement it and what does that implementation mean for actually getting it into the hands of the people who need it the most. Those are the people I worry about the most. And some of those concerns that that Ken was just talking about are the ones that are the things that I'm concerned about. And one of the things that I like most about the multiple-pronged approach as opposed to a one-size-fits-all is these people who fall through the cracks, I've got a better chance of finding them if I use multiple policies and multiple vehicles, I'm most likely to capture everybody, whereas with one, one program, if I don't catch you, uh, you're kind of gone for good. Okay, and and so I guess the implication then being if if we have people out there that because of their situation, they're, they're not paying taxes, they're not filing taxes, that if we were relying on, on on those those records or those files to figure out who to send money to, we, we might miss some Canadians. Well, I think it's important that people understand that it, people the only people who are legally required to file taxes are people who actually owe money to CRA when they actually fill out those forms. So if you are working and you have perfect withholding, you are actually not required to file your taxes. So when we look at the number of people who are the types of people who are not filing, it's not that they don't pay taxes, it's just that they don't owe taxes when they fill out the form. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, here in Alberta, a number of years ago, of course, we we um, we did this. It was certainly not an emergency situation of any sort, but the no. idea, yeah. right? Ralph boxes, they were called at the time. I mean, just as a model of getting a lump sum of money out to Alberta households, does that give us any kind of indication as to you know, how we could do that right now? Well, again, you, um, I mean, we could use various data, right? We I mean we have the census data, we have an idea of households. But again, you're going to miss people. Um, for example, if you're just going to use an address, we're going to miss um, people who don't have addresses, people experiencing homelessness, for example. We have transient populations that move across the provinces. There's always going to be gaps. So again, I'm not dismissing Ken's idea. I mean, it's a, it's a, simple, um, it's a simple idea that will, in fact, get a lot of people, which is why, um, you know, I think it was a week or two ago that I proposed using actually the GST, HST, CCB, GIS sort of payment system to capture a whole bunch of people. But then on the flip side, you were also proposing let's use the income support system and a variety of provincial tools as well to capture a whole bunch of other people. And I think that's my point is that don't don't do a one-size-fits-all model. What you want to do is think of a number of different tools that you can use to get really uh, money to people. And the money we're trying to get to people is this isn't about demand stimulus right now. This is about getting money to people so they keep their homes, that they can stay inside when they have to self-isolate, that they can put food on the table, keep the lights on. This is, we're not into stimulus and it's going to be like six or seven or eight months before we're even talking about economic stimulus. We're talking about getting money to people so they can stay alive. That's what we're talking about right now. And however we get there, that's the goal that we're all trying to achieve. Yeah, and you, you wrote a piece uh, that the policy school put out last week, and, and I mean, things are changing from day to day. Uh, much of that would, would, still, uh, would still stand here. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So you talk and about... Right, it's still the same idea of what Ken is talking about. We're trying mm-hmm. to get 
money to people. We're all trying to figure out what's the best way to get it to people. If at this time, and again, it's not demand stimulus. This is about making sure that people are able to survive for the, the, the next the six months or so while we are making sure that we, um, we bend that, that curve to get this virus under control. Uh, so in terms of more targeted uh, supports where we have uh, programs that assist low-income households, uh, the, the income assistance programs that exist, there's also the Canada Child Benefit, uh, that, that you propose kind of you know, beefing up those programs. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the things that I have learned about public policy is that uh, in order for the bureaucracy to deliver a new program, it often takes them three to four months to be able to uh, get it out the door, so to speak. Whereas when we use existing measures, uh, they they move much quicker. And we need to move quickly. We needed to move four weeks ago. We need to move now. So what, what my team and I thought a lot about was that particular fact. And so we think it's much more important to use existing tools that we can simply, like the GSTHST tax credit gets delivered on April 3rd. We know that we can top that up very, very quickly versus designing a whole new thing can often take another six to eight weeks. And that can make actually the difference between somebody keeping the place that they live and losing it. And that's why yeah. I think using existing tools is more is a better tool right now. All right. Well, it sounds like we'll find out tomorrow, uh, both from the federal finance minister and Alberta's uh, government as well, in terms of what kind of responses we're going to see in the short term. Uh, Lindsay, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you very much, Rob. All right, much appreciated. Uh, there you go, Lindsay Teds, uh, the uh, University of Calgary, also with the School of Public Policy, uh, Director of uh, Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy, which is uh, policyschool.ca. So, like I said, we'll, we'll find out a bit more tomorrow uh, from both the federal government and provincial governments by the sounds of it in terms of what kind of a, a fiscal response we're going to see here. But obviously, as we were just talking, I mean, there's going to be some considerable economic shock as a result of this whole situation. And, you know, even before this this whole COVID-19 situation, right? I mean, you know, the the, uh, the, the Canadian economy was on some precarious ground, right? There, there was certainly concern that, that we might see uh, some slowdown in, in the early part of this year. Obviously, the situation with uh, oil prices, rail blockades, you know, so we had some some issues we were dealing with. But this, this is going to mean a, a big, big shock. So perhaps no great surprise in that the Conference Board of Canada is anticipating that this uh, second quarter is going to see a, a contraction, uh, that, that we're looking at uh, a possible or maybe a likely recession as, as a result of all of this. But joining us to talk more uh, about the economic impact and, and some of the changing forecasts looking through the rest of 2020 and into next year, Matthew Stewart joining us, a Director of Economic Forecasting with the Conference Board of Canada. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, and as I say, I mean, coming into 2020, there, there were already some signs of concern, I guess, so when it comes to the Canadian economy. But this, um, this, this is quite the added wallop, isn't it? Yeah, when we look at the uh, end of last year, the economy grew by just uh, 0.3%. Uh, that's the weakest performance since the second quarter of 2016. And then you add on to that the impact of COVID-19, the collapse in oil prices that's uh, particularly hitting Alberta, and uh, the rail blockades. And uh, we basically brought Canada to the brink of recession. 
Yeah, and I, I think there's maybe a growing sense that, that uh, a recession is inevitable, I mean, as a result of just this whole unprecedented situation. And maybe the question is, right, how deep and how long? So what are we looking at in these latest numbers? Yeah, you know, when you think about a traditional recession, you usually think of it lasting a couple of quarters. Uh, this one's very unique in that, uh, you know, so far most of the impact is going to be contained uh, to the second quarter. Uh, we know how much people spend on, on things like uh, food, uh, going out to uh, restaurants and, and uh, uh, entertainment, and we know that's going to stop uh, basically in the second quarter. What we don't know yet is how long uh, that's going to last. Uh, so there's still a... Uh, we know it's going to be a, a, a steep decline in the second quarter. What we don't know yet is, is how long it's going to last uh, for the year. Uh, so at least, it, it, you know, and then these things may change, obviously, but this uh, this latest summary, then what, what kind of a, a contraction are we looking at? Uh, we're looking at almost a 3% decline in GDP in the second quarter. Uh, we're going to see large declines in consumer spending, particularly around food, accommodation, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, we're also seeing large declines in business investment is, is Companies really try and protect their balance sheets. Uh, we're also being hit uh, hard internationally. Our, our exports were already struggling uh, before, uh, you know, the recent uh, announcements around COVID. Uh, this only makes things worse. We're seeing, you know, a substantial slowdown in a lot of our trading partners, particularly United States and China. And that's making it even more difficult for us to sell uh, a lot of the goods uh, into those markets. So we're going to see a large hit on the trade side as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, one of the, uh, the the factors that affected the markets uh, yesterday anyway, some of the data coming out of China, which appears to be past the peak. Uh, but in terms of, you know, retail sales and, and lost productivity, I mean, it's it's been considerable, hasn't it? Uh, absolutely. It wasn't that long ago that we were expecting growth of around 6% in China. Uh, we now see growth in China of about 4%. And they're one of our largest trading partners. And, and that impacts uh, the entire supply chain uh, for our manufactured goods. Uh, now, we're going to get more details this week on what kind of a fiscal and, and stimulus response we're going to see from various levels of government, including, obviously, the federal government. Uh, how, how do we how do we factor those decisions in, right? you know, the decisions that get made or don't get made and, and how that's going to impact the economy? Well, I think given the, the size of the slowdown, uh, particularly in the second quarter, that we're going to see a pretty substantial stimulus package uh, at the federal level and, and likely uh, for Alberta as well. Uh, I expect we'll probably see something in the range of 1% of GDP, which is about $20 billion uh, announced uh, later this week at the federal level. Uh, Likely it'll come in the form of, you know, transfers to persons, uh, you know, tax cuts or or checks to households to help them deal with the uh, maybe being in quarantine or being home from work. Uh, You know, that'll have a, a substantial or a positive impact on the economy, but I don't think it'll have much of an impact right away. I think people will wait, basically wait until things you know, start to pick up before they spend a lot of this money. So we're still looking at a pretty substantial decline. Yeah, and and I think, you know, it's it's hard to know what the fallout's going to be. I mean, I think otherwise, though, if if the fundamentals are, are there for growth, that, you know, once we get through this situation, we'll, we we should see some kind of a rebound. So what, what are we anticipating then for the, uh, the coming quarters and, and looking into next year? Yeah, I do think we'll see a rebound uh, towards the end of the year, uh, likely in the third slightly in the third quarter and then particularly in the fourth quarter this year we'll see a rebound which makes it quite different than a lot of the other recessions that we've seen Um, but even still we'll see a a pretty weak year for GDP uh, for Canada Uh, the growth that Canada was experiencing already wasn't uh, particularly great Uh, now we're looking at 0.3 which is is, you know far from a good story when you look at Alberta in particular uh, we just updated our numbers 
Alberta was likely in or was in recession last year with a decline in GDP. Uh, we expect no growth in, in Alberta for 2020. Well, that's yeah, that's that's disappointing, and obviously that's very much linked to to what's happening with oil. And obviously, this situation's having impact on demand, but we've got other global circumstances that are contributing to to higher um, supply. And uh, obviously, Alberta's feeling the brunt of all of that. Yeah, just to put it into context, uh, you know, Alberta's economy is still smaller where what than when it was in 2014. So it, it's been particularly hit hard. Uh, not only with the impact of, of COVID-19, but with the, the large drop uh, in, in oil prices. Um, I, I do think that there is some, some positive news and that, uh, you know, if, if Saudi Arabia and Russia can come back to the table, we may see some higher oil prices later in the year uh, and allow for a bit of a rebound uh, into 2021. Let's hope so. Uh, much more at conferenceboard.ca. Matthew, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate this. Uh, thank you for having me. All right. There you go. That's uh, Matthew Stewart, Director of Economic Forecasting at the Conference Board of Canada. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly some some troubling numbers in all of this, but some some signs of optimism uh, down the road here. And, uh, you know, we say we, we hope so. Right. That's kind of the word we're all using now, that, that we're kind of hoping for the best here in, in getting through this this crisis and hoping uh, that it's as uh, short lived as as it can be. Well, it's nice of Tom Brady to give sports journalists something uh, to talk about with all the leagues shut down. Uh, the uh, quarterback announcing today that he's not going to return to the uh, New England Patriots. Uh, so uh, he's apparently going to continue his career somewhere else. And I mean, obviously, that's assuming that uh, everything goes off as normal with the upcoming NFL season. Uh, so, anyway, some some big news uh, in the sports world, and uh, certainly I think the sports world's been a little bit starved for them, because all the news recently has been either about uh, the, the league shutdowns or, um, you know, the kind of bad press uh, for some of these big sports teams, or whether they're going to look after their, their part-time staff once you cancel the games. Uh, you got a lot of people who would be working those games who, who aren't doing anything. And, you know, to the credit of some teams, they, they stepped up right away and said, look, yep, we got your back. Other teams took a little bit longer. Uh, For a couple of Canadian teams, including the Calgary Flames, uh, there was a 180 along the way. Uh, The Flames and the Jets, uh, the Winnipeg Jets, uh, and even the Ottawa Senators uh, had initially uh, indicated that they wouldn't be um, helping out their their part-time staff through this, but uh, all have since said that they would. I think the only NHL team that isn't is the Boston Bruins. Uh, they're a pretty well-off team, owned by a pretty uh, well-off owner. But uh, joining us to talk a bit more about you know the, the impact this is having on the NHL and some of the uncertainty around what's uh, what's coming around the corner. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Marty Klinkenberg. He's a reporter with The Globe and Mail, also author of the book, The McDavid Effects. Marty, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much, Rob. I'm uh, glad to be with you. Uh, it's been an interesting few days for these these NHL teams, obviously, and, and certainly some bad press for a few of them. Um, your, your thoughts just on, on this whole situation with the part-time staff and, and the decisions that some teams have been making? Well, you know, it's really kind of funny. I have a son who's a college student in Boston, and he actually works for the uh, he works for the Red Sox at Fenway Park part-time in security. So... Um, I was kind of getting I was kind of getting feedback from him immediately um, over over how they were how they were going to handle it, 
And so it was kind of on the ground, ground floor. But now, you know, this whole, the whole world has gone upside down in the last, you know, it's hard to even think back to 10 days ago I know. And, yeah. and how normal things seem to be. So when this happened, you know, uh, with the NBA on Wednesday and the other sports leagues on Thursday, everything was coming at, at everybody so quickly that, you know, I was, I had, I do have a lot of faith in humanity, and it, and it seemed to me that that a, a majority of organizations, you know, did step in to do the right mm-hmm. thing. Uh, the Mavericks on Wednesday night, Mark Cuban. Now he is a billionaire, but Mark Cuban immediately uh, started talking about how he would, you know, that he would take whatever steps necessary, and he even talked about. The tax comp- there could be tax complications and all sorts of stuff. And then, well, what do we do if we pay employees and now, but then they work the date? Um, do we pay them again? And then he said, "Oh, what the heck? I don't really care. I, yes, yeah, so I'll pay them a second time." So you you had you know you had a gamut of respond of responses. The Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment was pretty quick on Thursday. Uh, model organizations, you know, I, I, I've always looked at the Flames and the Jets as uh, very, very good kind of corporate citizens and, and model organizations. And, I'm, you know, I do have the feeling that, uh, that it, you know, that if they could do it all over again, they mm-hmm. might have had a, a different response. You know, I, I think it's it's fair to give them a give them a mulligan. Uh, they did they did eventually decide to do the right you know make the right decision there, but yeah. I think that you know that they caused some confusion and probably upset with with some of those part time employees and hourly workers that you know that they they really wish they they hadn't hadn't now. Yeah, and you know, with so much going on, I mean, I you know, I don't know how many people were were paying close attention, but there, there certainly was a backlash, um, you know, on, on social media and even here in Calgary. I mean, yet one city councilor, Jeff Davison, who was maybe the biggest booster on city council for you know getting an arena deal with the Flames and having some public dollars involved, and and he was most vocal and in, in you know urging the Flames to to respond. I think that kind of magnified things a little bit here, is that we had just been through this arena debate, and you know the fact that you know the the city had ponied up and put some public dollars toward uh, helping the Flames get this new arena, uh, and then to have the Flames turn around and do this. I, I think that made it a little worse for them. Oh, I think you're you're absolutely right. And I saw I saw the counselor uh, counselor's uh, comments, and I think I I mentioned it in in my story that you know that he pretty much took them to lash out at them uh, the night the night before that you know they announced that they they finally announced that they would uh, you know come up with means of support for those part time employees. But I I saw that he lashed out at them. Um, yeah, the, the timing the timing itself wasn't you know was pretty was pretty difficult I think uh, especially after the arena after that arena debate you know I think that that uh, there there would be some uh, there would already be hard feelings any to against it and any of those people feel any better for sure. 
Uh, and just quickly, I mean, Marty, what are you hearing? I mean, I, I know the NHL is watching this day by day. They've allowed players to leave their their team cities, return to their home cities, wherever those might happen to be. And, um, you know, maybe the idea at some point in May or June or even later of just kind of going right into a, an altered or a shortened playoffs, probably in front of empty arenas would still even be the best case scenario. But what, what are you hearing about contingency plans and, and discussions? Yeah, I you know I, I noticed that they pushed back from the you know from the original uh, kind of end of end of the month here. I I would honestly be surprised if we were looking at at the hockey in any form before June, and you know we could be we could still even be looking at playoffs and into you know into August. I I think I, I'm not sure. It, depending on how long this window is, uh, you, you know, will they pick up with the, with the remaining regular season games? I think that that's a question. It's, if not, it's going to, it's going to, uh, it's, it's going to make a lot of people unhappy because, you know, they've all played within, within a couple of games of each other, but that makes a difference in the standings. Mm-hmm. Are they going to, going to start, with the regulars, with the end of the regular season, are they going to start with the with the Stanley Cup playoffs? Are they going to go with sixteen teams, or are they going to maybe try to reformat the playoffs and go with twelve teams? And of course, that would that would create you know uh, a lot of animosity for some clubs. I, but I don't think that we're looking that we're looking at. You know, I think May is is maybe too soon. Uh, I would think that it's more like June, and you know, but it's kind of it's kind of hard to tell from day to day, right? Because you yep. you know we're seeing more and more cases in in Canada and uh, and and of course in the U.S. Uh, things are kind of blowing up right now, so it's kind of hard to tell when when the peak is going to be. If the peak is thirty to forty five days, like some health officials are talking at, then we're talking about then we're you know we're already into the to the middle to the end of April, um, so I think it's there's probably going to be a longer delay. I guess we'll find out uh, much more on, on all of this and of course uh, COVID nineteen coverage at theglobeandmail dot com. Marty, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate oh. it. Thank you so much for asking. Glad to do it. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. Uh, Marty Klinkenberg, a reporter with the Globe and Mail, also author of the book, The McDavid Effect. So, um, yeah, a lot of it's going to depend on, on just what happens in the coming weeks. Obviously, the players staying healthy, the, the ability to be able to travel, that that's all going to play a role in uh, whether they can do any games. But I think at some point, you know, just to have that sense of normalcy, to be able to turn on the TV, watch a hockey game, even if there's nobody at the game, uh, you know, I, I think people would, would be craving that. Uh, in, in the weeks and months ahead. So some big decisions to be made. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.